May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Peter. 
Peter's conversion from partiality to peace. Jesus has come to bring peace to the world. This message is first proclaimed for us at the birth of Jesus. And our reminder today is that peace and partiality cannot be bedfellows per God's proclamation. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Peter throws a party, <laughs> at which we have both peace and partiality. Now, on one side of the room, as people come in the door, peace is drawing more chairs up to the table and beckoning the wait staff and asking for more tables. Peace gives up its own chair to the newcomers and stands, while partiality on the other side of the room, as people enter, says that the chairs in the room are only for certain people. And as those chairs fill, partiality says there's no room and sends people to decide which piece And then partiality, looking at the scene, begins to make distinctions as to why those who come into the room are not allowed to sit at the table, that they are not allowed by the chair, why those who are sitting at the table are different from those on the other side of the wall. And maybe this brings to mind a very American experience that many of us have had, the high school cafeteria. <laughs> I think the trauma of those experiences take a long time to go away. Who's sitting with who? Who is invited and who is not? Who is prevented and who is not? And the gossip that ensues from one table to another about the table over there. This story is so common to our experience that even Saturday Night Live had a recent version of that in the UN cafeteria with our world leaders. <laughs> Maybe in watching that sketch, you relived your own experiences at lunch. Well, as we become adults and we go out into the world, we carry these patterns of partiality with us. Indeed, they are embedded in our human DNA. Quote a character from Love Actually. It's kind of a self-preservation thing, you know. Survive, protect our own by determining who is like us and who is not. Tribalism. And indeed, tribalism was very much happening at the time in which Peter is traveling in Acts. <coughs> Peter's movement from partiality in which the message of the gospel is only for Judeans to peace in which the message of the gospel shows no preference is about remaining in a rigorous commitment to God's call, which leads him to a different kind of openness, which flies in the face of the establishment. Because to say and believe and practice that Gentiles are now also called to be saved by Jesus, that they 
are not unclean as they have been teaching is a 180 turnaround here. Rabbi Hershey mentions his own conversion in a similar vein in his interview with Simran Jean Singh. He shares that when he stepped away from fundamentalist Judaism, he did so because he discovered after a while it did not dovetail with his value and the dignity of every human being. And he says that rigorous commitment to God brought him to equally rigorous openness. And this groundbreaking moment for Peter to forego partiality probably came at a cost. Because anytime we choose to break down barriers, we make people uncomfortable. But we do so as my favorite moral philosopher who you've already heard about, John Hare, says, it's because we do so we're choosing for the greater good. Peter's conversion in the story comes about because there's an intersection between the work of the Holy Spirit and the community at hand. And that's what puts him on the hot seat. It creates a situation in which our values do not allow our actions and words to be separate. Just as Rabbi Hirschfeld describes a catalyst for his own transformation. Think of those moments, such as Peter's here in Acts, in which you and I have been called in front of others to speak as to why we are there and what we stand for. It might be an individual situation of you and one other person. It might be in a crowd such as Peter encountered. And in these moments, we have a stark choice about whether we truly embody what God is calling us to be or whether we shrink like another Peter, the one who, when put on the spot in the courtyard while warming his hands around the fire with the household servants, denies that he is a companion of Jesus. Now, while I was in seminary, I had my own hot seat moment. Going through the ordination process, learning how to articulate theology and, and what I stood for as an Episcopalian, I got on a plane to be an exchange student for a few weeks with St. Nicholas Anglican Seminary in Cape Coast, Ghana. Now, Ghana, when I arrived, was ordaining women just barely. So there was one female seminarian and 22 men. And I roamed with, with my fellow seminarian, female seminarian, and learned about the journey. But they were not ordaining anyone who was anything other than heterosexual. Indeed, a lot of the Anglican communion is very conservative compared to our own Episcopal Church in the United States. And the ordinations of the LGBTQ persons is not something that has been agreed upon. And I knew in being there that we would have theological differences, but I didn't know how I was going to encounter them. So after my first week, the dean of the seminary said they wanted to have a community conversation with me because I was 
the exchange student. I was the first female seminarian exchange student to attend classes with them and eat meals with them and learn about their life together. And so we sat around the community room, like we would at a college or seminary here, couches around the edges, everybody sharing couches and chatting until we were ready to begin. And as I'm sitting there, I'm wondering if the question around who we ordained in the Episcopal Church is going to arrive. And certainly enough, it's the first question. <laughs> Richard asked the question, he's one of the more um, straightforward seminarians. And I knew it was coming, I didn't think it would come first. So Richard asked this question, and there are some murmurs around the room. Partially because I think they were hoping to not leap out of the gate with the most difficult part of our conversation. Um, so there was, and maybe culturally, I don't know, perhaps that was also a little bit forward. But we should ask a question about why we're ordaining LGBTQ persons in the Episcopal Church. And while I'm clear within myself about what I believe and why I'm called to ordination and the way we ordain people in our tradition here, I'm solid on it. I've never been in a situation where I've been asked to articulate it to fellow members of the Anglican Union who clearly do not agree. But they're also my friends. And I love being with them. I've had an amazing experience. And I'm wondering how do I state what we believe theologically here without judging or criticizing my friends and fellow soon-to-be priests and I asked God for help. And the word that came out of my mouth was God helping me say that God shows no partiality. It is not us who chooses who God calls to ordain ministry with God. And who are we to stand in the way of that? Well, the conversation continued in many forms and never was antagonistic. And a few days later, James, the head seminarian, came up to me and he said, Thank you. You got me thinking. And we're all still friends on Facebook. We all still update each other about who's in what parish. That moment is what Sherman Alexi calls a pivot point. One we never forget. For we are transformed when these moments happen, regardless of what we choose in the moment. If we, in rigorous commitment to God, move closer to peace, we will remember that. If in that moment we move away from that commitment to peace, we will relive that choice. See perhaps how it shrank our world and resolve the next time to never let it happen again. We could also continue to remember that pivot point as one in which we made a choice for our world to shrink just a little bit in rigorous commitment to rigorous partiality, and that we're okay with that and we continue down into that narrow path that gets smaller and smaller. But we don't forget the moment. Peace and partiality come in all shapes and sizes, and we do not know when they will come into a face-off in our own lives. 
Christ comes from the life lived where our actions and our Christian values are aligned. For each time in those pivotal moments when we choose to let go of partiality, peace will unravel it bit by bit until it sends partiality packing out the door and barring the door from entry next time. The Holy Spirit stirs the winds of change, and those are the winds that open us up to these possibilities of peace. These are the winds that blow away the stagnant mindsets of fear and tribalism that prevent us from letting go of our partialities. To truly live a life of God is to live a life without partiality. But that also means to take away our filters how we limit what comes into our lives, which is an overwhelming thought. And this is where we connect to a few weeks ago when I preached on moral philosophy, about how we choose to either do things for our own good regardless of the world, or we do things for our own good only for if it's good for the world. And in those moments of choice to follow the greater good, there are times when there's that gap between our ability to meet the world's need. And that's when we remember that God fills the gap between the world's needs and our capacity to meet those needs. So to remember our conversation about partiality today is to understand that only with God's help can we live without partiality. Because our baptismal covenant is right there in the words, with God's help, we say it over and over again. So, in those moments when we're on that hot seat and our partiality is staring us in the face, let us remember to pray to God and ask for help in the way that God guided Peter and Cornelius, that with God's help, we can let go of our 